Yeah. Pastor Joe, didn't you tell me that that pan was going to be what we use for uh, offerings from now on? That big April Fool's. <laughs> Still not used to his sense of humor yet. But I just try things out just to see. Well, good morning. If um, you turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah is a minor prophet. Right before the uh, famous Italian prophet Malachi. <clears throat> which is right before the New Testament. That was a joke. <laughs> You're probably not used to my sense of humor yet either. Zechariah 9 9. Still your pages. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice, your king is coming. Who's saying this morning uh, about our mighty king? Who is this king? We're told throughout the Old Testament of a coming king. Actually, the, the entire Old Testament speaks of this coming king, prophesies of this one who is coming, this one who is unique, unique in all of history. The one that's been spoken of and written of since the beginning of time. Unique in that he's the subject of more devotion, more study, more books, more songs than anyone else who ever lived. This coming one is unique because he transcends time in a way that even unbelievers, people who don't know of the Bible, can recognize history is divided by his coming. B.C. and A.D. Palm Sunday. Nearly 2,000 years ago, our king arrived. Not when he came as a babe in the manger. We recognize the coming one on this day. We recognize him as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords. We don't recognize the manger as the symbol of his coming. We recognize the cross as the symbol of his coming. But who is this King that Zechariah prophesies about and that the whole Old Testament speaks about? Well, Dr. Tony Evans asks that question in his book entitled, Who is this King of Glory? Certainly a question that we should all ask. He writes, find one scripture, one little verse 
that doesn't somehow relate to Jesus Christ. He's challenging us. For all of Scripture revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to His coming. The Gospels chronicle His earthly life. Acts and the Epistles are integrally tied to His body, the Church. Revelation describes His eternal Kingdom. Jesus Christ is indeed the central figure in all creation. History, it's been said, is really His story. This King, the one we are told of in Zechariah 9.9, there are over 300 specific prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. Here's an example of some of them. In Genesis 3.15, it speaks of the seed of the woman, a virgin birth. It's fulfilled in Luke 1 and Matthew 1. In Genesis 12.3, we see Abraham's seed that will bless all the nations. It's fulfilled in Acts 3. In Genesis 14, we see a priest and a king fulfilled in Hebrews. We see in Genesis 14, the Last Supper foreshadowed. All of these things we see foreshadowed in the Old, Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. Exodus 12, Jesus Christ, our Passover. We're going to celebrate, the Jewish people are going to celebrate Passover starting this Friday. Exodus 12, not a bone of the lamb to be broken, prophesied regarding Jesus, fulfilled in John 19. Genesis 49, the time of his coming, fulfilled in Luke 2 and Galatians 4, a specific time spoken of for the coming of our Savior. In Daniel 9, that we're going to go through a little bit of tonight, announced to his people 483 years to the exact day. Today, on Sunday, 2,000 years ago. The time of his birth, the place of his birth, that he would be born a virgin, that he would be pierced, that he would die for the wicked, but buried with the rich. All prophecies concerning Jesus concerning this coming King. The Bible has prophecies and types throughout its pages that come together to give us a complete picture of who Jesus is. Many people, though, don't see it. Certainly, the Jewish people who, who, who read the Old Testament, their eyes have been blinded. They don't see it's Jesus. Now, a prophecy is a foretelling or a foretelling of a biblical concept or event. And a type, when we speak of types, it's a biblical way of expressing that concept or event by using something else. It's like an analogy. There were religious leaders in the Old Testament who were living at, who were actually living the very types and prophecies of Jesus, yet they wouldn't see it. They didn't see it. 
Jewish people around the world will celebrate Passover this Friday. They are looking at a type of Jesus. The Jewish people were escaping slavery and bondage of Egypt. Egypt is a type of sin in the Bible. And sin keeps people in bondage. In the book of Exodus, the Jewish firstborns were spared from the angel of death by applying the blood of a spotless, innocent lamb to the doorpost of their homes as God brought his people out of slavery into freedom. You can actually start to see the types as I just described them. Today, we believe that Jesus is our perfect Passover lamb. And we apply his blood to the doorposts of our heart. And when we do that, we pass from death into life. We pass from slavery and bondage into freedom of a child of God. John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming toward him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you can see all of the types, all of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if there were those living in the Old Testament who knew of the scriptures and saw the events taking place and wouldn't or couldn't see that it was the Messiah that was being spoken of. And there were those who were living even among Jesus in his incarnation, who saw the miracles, who witnessed the attraction, who heard the teachings of Jesus, but they closed their eyes and ears also to the truth. And there are those today who, although they may have seen the work of God in the lives of others, or maybe even experienced it for themselves, they deny that it's the work of God. Their eyes and their ears are also closed to the truth. We can try to deny it, but we will be confronted with a choice. You can continue to reject the truth or accept it and be changed forever. That's why the question Tony Evans asks, who is this King of Glory, can be followed by another question. Well, now that you know who he is, what will you do? What will you do with the coming king? Zechariah writes, Behold, your king is coming. Turn with me to Matthew, two books over to the right, chapter 21. We saw the prophecy in Zechariah 9. We're going to see the fulfillment in Matthew 21. Beginning at verse 1, going to verse 5. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately, immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, that we just read. 
tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. We see Jesus here commanding his disciples to do something for him. Jesus gives a command, but he also anticipates, and he actually knows, their hesitation. Who in that day would just allow someone to come and take a donkey and a colt and not ask any questions? It's like if I said to somebody, well, go to the parking lot, <laughs> pick out two nice cars, and just take them. And just, if anyone asks, just say, well, the Lord has need of them. Okay, you can relate now. The Lord has need of them. I, I think there'd be a little struggle there. See, a lesson for us here, because the disciples were obedient to that. It sounded strange to them, but they were obedient. A lesson for us, if the Lord asks you to do something, if you hear clearly from God about something, don't hesitate. Even if it sounds a little strange, if it's God's will, if it's God's command, it's right. Understand and believe the omniscience of God beyond what you and I could possibly know. See, he knows all the facts. He knows the end from the beginning. We only see the circumstances we're looking at it. It looks strange. It looks unusual. But if God's commanding us, be obedient to them. See, Jesus, Jesus knew there would be a colt and a donkey tied at a particular location with owners who had the proper disposition to allow them to be taken. He knew that. And in verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 21, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him, Jesus, on them, on the clothes. So they loosed the donkey and the colt. Again, we're seeing the prophet Zechariah's words fulfilled in this passage. But we see a lot more. Zechariah writes about the coming king in humility lowly, and sitting on a donkey. There's something in the details about this that gives us a sense of the Messiah's humility, and also his royalty. See, he is humble with dignity. He doesn't come on a conquering steed like an earthly gen general after a military victory. Now, we would expect a king to arrive in that way. We would certainly expect the Son of God to arrive in that way. But as we recall the Christmas story, he arrived lowly and humble. And when he's introduced on that Palm Sunday, he arrives also lowly and humble. He comes on a colt, still representing royalty in that day, but with appropriate meekness. That's Jesus. That's our Lord. We get a glimpse here into the character of Christ. Humility is central to his nature. And his followers are called to be like him. Humble. Lowly. We are called to be humble. But humility goes against our nature. It's at odds 
with who we really are. It goes against everything that the world tells us that we should be. Humility? I don't think so. How are we to get ahead in this world with humility? How are we to win friends and influence people with humility? It doesn't work that way. But it does. It does. Because it's God's way. See, we need the Holy Spirit inside us to guide us and work in our lives so that we can accomplish what God has for us in humility, like Jesus did. Back to Matthew 21. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. We see that first Palm Sunday fulfilled. They cut down palm branches. They spread them on the road. The other gospel accounts speak of them waving the branches in the air. Notice here, though, that a great multitude recognized the importance of this event. See, this just wasn't Jesus, the carpenter from, from Nazareth, coming in to, to Jerusalem. There was something special about this. And a great multitude of them recognized that. See, the ancient custom of spreading your clothes on the road represents admiration and reverence. They exhibited that for Jesus as he was coming into Jerusalem. Usually this tra uh, tradition was reserved for royalty, a person of great esteem. So again, a great many of that crowd recognized Jesus. Others spread palm branches on the road. John tells us that they were palm branches. Again, that signaled that a liberator had arrived. Spreading palm branches on the road signals, signals that freedom was at hand. We can recognize that a liberator has arrived for us. And the question obviously would come up, why would we need a liberator if we weren't in some type of slavery? Why would we need to be freed if we weren't in bondage? In John 8, 34, it says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We need a liberator because we are in the slavery and bondage of sin. Romans 6, 16 through 18 says, Do you not know that you to, that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? A choice. But God be thanked, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves, slaves of righteousness. Bob Dylan once sang, you've got to serve somebody. 
We either are slaves to sin or slaves to, to righteousness. We either are servants of Satan or servants of God. It's a choice we make. So the liberator has arrived. The one who has freed us from sin has come in. The coming king spread the palm branches on the ground before him. Given the honor and reverence he deserves, he's come to free you from bondage. Back to Matthew 21, in verse 9, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The worship team sang that song to me, Hosanna. Appropriately, because that is what the crowd cried out that first Palm Sunday. The word Hosanna is transliterated from the Hebrew expression, which means save now. Save now. They were, they were crying out. The crowd was crying out when Jesus entered into Jerusalem that day. Save now. Did they know it was him? Yeah, I believe they did. Many of them did. In Psalm 118, 25 and 26, it says, Save now, that same word. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118. As they cried out, as the crowd cried out to Jesus, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was obvious that many of the people that came out into the streets to greet Jesus knew the scriptures. And they were recognizing his fulfillment of the scriptures, of those prophecies. And the crowd was doing something interesting, very interesting on that first Palm Sunday that we don't see on the surface. And it's not until we look a little deeper into what they were saying that we understand fully why this particular day was so important. Why was it that that day was so important? The date on that first Palm Sunday was the 10th of Nisan. 32 A.D., or April 6th, 32 A.D. And it wasn't just a random date in history. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Now, Pastor Joe went over the, the, the dating of Daniel chapter 9. He actually gave a handout, a little, um, a little bookmark, that shows the timeline. But I'm just going to go through it a little bit because it's important that we see why this day was so special. In Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read verse 20 to 25. Daniel writes, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain 
of my Lord, of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me oh, and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And this is the vision that the angel Gabriel gives to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. The angel Gabriel speaks of 70 weeks. 70 weeks of years, as it's spoken of in that time. Well, just like we would say a decade is a span of 10 years. A week, spoken of in, pro in prophecy, is spoken of, of a span of seven years. So, weeks of years. The time Daniel is writing about is the span from when the Persian king Artaxerxes, when he made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 BC, to the coming of the Messiah, the one that Zechariah wrote about, Behold, your coming king, would be 69 weeks, or 483 years. And that, that was based on a 360-day calendar back then. The 70th week is yet to come. The 70th week is the seven-year tribulation period. So we have 69 weeks from the time that that decree went out to the coming of Messiah. But is it? Well, a little math. <laughs> Get you prepared for Monday morning for you guys who go to school. From March 14, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D., 477 years, subtract 1, because there's no year for the year 0, and you get 476 years. 476 years is using our 365 and a quarter day calendar. What day does that bring us to? Well, it brings us exactly to the day that Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. This is not by accident. Jesus did not just ride into, into Jerusalem on that day, picking a random day out of, out of the air. It was said. It was prophesied. And many of the people that were there that day understood it. Or they wouldn't have been crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They wouldn't have been laying their palm branches on the ground before him. They wouldn't have been waving in the air. 
but many did not understand it. And many today don't recognize the coming one. Many today don't understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Bible speaks of. So back to Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11. It says, When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. I love that verse 10 where it says, all the city was moved. Jesus has an impact on everyone that he comes in contact with. And I'll say something to the believers here today. You represent Jesus Christ to people around you. You have an impact on people that you come in contact with, just as Jesus did back then. People should be moved when they meet you. They should see something special, something different. Not something haughty or proud. But as Jesus rode in lowly, in humility, they should see a humility about you that's attractive. A humility that represents who Jesus is in your life. And then the question, who is this? Who is this? The crowd asks. This is Jesus, the coming king. This is the one who is just, Zechariah writes. Perfect. This is the one who has salvation. This is the one who has salvation. We don't, we don't need to look anywhere else. Salvation comes from Jesus. It comes from his sacrifice. That's why this week is so important to Christians all over the world, especially. The events of this week, this is commonly called Passion Week, this week coming up. The Passion of Jesus. The road that he took from that first Palm Sunday to all of the events that occurred throughout this week. So as we go through this week, it would be important for us to consider what Jesus went through to save us. See, he is the one who has salvation, the scripture says. And there's another time in the Bible, there are actually four times that Behold Your King is spoken of in the Bible. And there's one additional time. It's when Jesus was before Pilate. And after his scourging and his beating and his mocking, Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd. In John 19, 14 and 15, John writes, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
See, Pilate was doing it more in a mocking way that day. Again, another event in this Passion Week that we should, we should consider. But he said, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Who's your king today? Who is this king of glory? As Dr. Tony Evans asks. Is he king of kings in your life? Is he lord of lords in your life? Or do you say, I have other kings. I have other lords. I have others who I bow down to. I have others that I kneel before. I have things that are my kings in my life. Who is this king? Now that we are beginning to understand who this king is, what will you do with this king of glory? From his triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday in AD 32 to the events of his trial, the abandonment of his friends and followers, the beating and the scourging of the Roman soldiers, to the paradox of the cross. See, the cross is a paradox. See, it makes us weep and it makes us wonder. We get to see a greater picture of who Jesus is through this week through his journey. And it should cause us to contemplate about what Jesus did for you and for me and for all of humanity. See, it's about the cross. It's about Jesus going to the cross. But it's also about us. It's about us taking up our cross. In Matthew 16, you know, I'm taking you on a little journey through the scriptures today, but Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. A couple chapters back. You see, I think that it's important that we really consider what this week is all about. And then not just put it away for another year. But make this a beginning of a lifelong journey for all of us. See, it was a life-changing, history-changing journey this week. It should be for all of us, too. In verses 24 through 26 in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we were speaking the other day, I was speaking the other day to some people and uh, People look at, sometimes people look at Christians, people look at the Bible, and they think it's, it's backwards, they think it's upside down, and that's true. 
it's true because the world has a certain worldview and believers have a certain biblical worldview that's at odds with one another. You see, Matthew writes here, for Jesus is saying, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. It flips around. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Self-denial. Jesus exhibited perfect, ultimate self-denial when he went to the cross. But self-denial for us goes against our human tendencies, goes against everything that we strive for. We rebel against denying ourselves. The culture expects us to go after everything in this world with gusto in order to indulge ourselves. And denying ourselves is what Jesus wants. Denying ourselves, though, is never easy. But it's necessary in order to become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus did not rebel against denying himself. He did not rebel. He went willingly to the cross because he loves us. He did not rebel against it. Taking up our cross means dying to our own desires. Dying to self is the only way we can have a relationship with God. Our self-directed life will never get us into a relationship with God. It's only by recognizing our inability and His ability that we'll be saved. It's dying to self. Taking up our cross means dying to self. And then it's continually dying to self as we grow in our relationship with God. See, ultimately, we're to look more and more like Jesus. We can only do that by continually denying herself and dying to self and self-centeredness. But it's a journey. It's, it's a walk. And as we contemplate this week the journey that Jesus took to the cross, I think it would do us well to contemplate our journey. As Jesus was raised in victory, it only happened because he was crucified. See, we can't live a resurrected life until we've lived a crucified life. We can't live a resurrected life until we've lived a crucified life. What does that mean? Charles Stanley puts it this way in this month's uh, In Touch. The trip to the cross is not one you take with family and friends. It's a lonely journey with just you and Jesus. He strips away everyone and everything you've depended on so that you'll learn to rely only on Him. When we're at the cross, He uncovers layer after layer of self-deception until we begin to see ourselves as He does. And soon, 
our self-centeredness, inadequacy, and failures are laid bare. That sounds scary. Do we really want Jesus to start peeling away the layers of self-deception in our lives? I heard a yes. <laughs> I heard only one yes. Do we? We should. Allow him to do that. Allow him to start to peel those layers away. Lay them bare before him. What are you holding on to? What are you relying on? What are you denying to lay at the cross of Christ? In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. We need to become crucified with Christ. The cross is not an event that occurred 2,000 years ago that we look back with fondness on. The, the cross is a symbol of our walk to become more like Jesus. It's at the cross that we confess our sins and we receive His forgiveness. It's at the cross where we continue to cast our cares upon Him and allow Him to bear our burdens. It's at the cross that we deny ourselves. Some of you have been on that journey for years and you're still stumbling and falling like all of us are. That's normal. It's our prayer for those who have been in the Lord for many years that we stumble and fall less as we become more like Him. Some have just begun that journey. Maybe you've been saved for less than six months and you're still trying to understand what that all means. Maybe you're, you're having opportunities to explain your your, your new focus on life to those around you who've known you for years and now they start to see something different. Maybe they start to see you in church on a Sunday morning when maybe you'd be doing something else. Or in church on a Wednesday evening when you'd be doing something else. They start to question, they start to see a change in your life. That's a good thing. Gives you an opportunity to express to others what God is doing in your life and why these things are going on. You're denying yourself. You're taking up your cross and you're following Him. That's why you're here. And some of you may not have yet taken that step at all. That journey hasn't begun for you yet. That journey can begin today. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry, he gives us a little bit of a different perspective. He records that 
After the crowd was crying out and praising Jesus, then the Pharisees told the disciples to rebuke them for praising Jesus. Rebuke them. They said even if they were to be quiet, the stones would cry out, the Bible says. You can't hold back. But the Pharisees obviously were threatened by Jesus' popularity. They may have felt that their positions were in jeopardy. So if you just turn with me to Luke chapter 19, let's, let's just look at Luke's account of this. Luke chapter 19. Keeping you awake with all the scripture searching today, right? It's a good thing. In verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every, on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you, leaving you one stone upon another because... You did not know the time of your visitation. Two important things, Luke writes. He says, this your day. What day? A special day. This was not just any day. And then he writes about the time of your visitation. See, they were, they were blinded. Many of them were blinded to his first coming. And they didn't pay heed to the time of his visitation into their lives. Zechariah writes, Behold your king. Don't miss. Don't miss. I urge you, do not miss the time of your visitation. Do not miss this your day. The journey to the cross started this day. In 32 AD. Your journey to the cross can start this same day. People speak of the Roman road. And we're talking about journeys. We're talking about a, a trip. We're talking about a lifelong journey. And we, and we, we hear of the Roman road. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going, to, I'm going to read some scriptures from the book of Romans. That as we consider this week, this journey that Jesus took, we consider our journey. Whether we've begun it many years ago or we haven't yet begun it, we can, we can still be reminded of what it is. In Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
And in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, and all have sinned. That's not very politically correct. But it is biblically correct. God gives us a standard to live by. And honestly, none of us live up to that standard. Because that standard is perfection. One only was able to fulfill that standard, and that was Jesus. Now, if we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of God's glory, that's the problem. Because we cannot relate to a holy God. Sinful people cannot relate. Something needs to be done. Sin separates us from God. And one person's sin doesn't necessarily separate him any farther from God than another person's. So don't think that you can compare yourself to someone else and say, well, I'm okay because I'm not as bad as this person here because that's not the standard. We've set the standard already. The standard is perfection. None of us are there. So the problem is sin. And what's the penalty? In the other part of, in, in, in Romans 6, 23, the penalty, it says, the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. The problem is sin. The penalty is death. God's holiness demands a penalty. God's holiness demands a consequence for our sin. Separation from God is eternal, eternal death, spiritual death. So the problem is sin, the penalty is death. How did God reconcile that? What did he do to take care of the problem of sin? In Romans 5.8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. This is how we see God's love. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now look, we're going to see a lot about Eastern Resurrection Sunday. We're going to see a lot about Good Friday. We're going we're to see a lot about Passover. Passover begins Good Friday. What does God's love look like? Practically, biblically, truthfully, what does God's love look like? God's love is demonstrated toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son Jesus to take the penalty, to take the consequence of our sin. Remember, the problem is sin. The penalty is death. But Jesus took that penalty and died on the cross for every single person who ever lived and whoever will live. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. And he took upon himself, Jesus, that punishment. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace, God's riches, and Christ's 
expense. That expense was the cross. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, in the other part of verse 23 in Romans 6, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The penalty, the problem is sin, the penalty is death. The plan is Christ taking our penalty upon himself and exchanging that for eternal life for us. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So what is, how does this work? How does this play itself out? For those who have started that journey, you know that you, at some point in time, you had to recognize, you had to recognize the problem. You had to recognize and understand that you don't match up to God's standard. That's a humbling thing. We spoke a lot about humility today. We spoke a lot about taking up our cross, denying ourselves. We spoke a lot today about understanding who Jesus really is. And now that we know, what are we to do with this King of glory? What is our responsibility? In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul writes, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Our responsibility is to believe and confess. In Romans 10.13, it says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not complicated. Sin is complicated. The plan that God had set forth is not. You know, we can go through our minds, we can roll all these things around in our, in our heads and try to really get a grasp of them intellectually. But what is going on in your heart? We spoke about putting the blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. We spoke about the symbol of that Passover and how it applies to our lives in the 21st century. We take the blood of a spotless lamb, perfect, without blemish, and we put it on the doorposts of our heart. And if we do that, we're free from bondage. Now, if anyone here is in bondage to sin, I'm sure you're just dying to be free from that. So, the worship team is going to uh, play a song. 
And I'm going to give you guys an opportunity for anyone who is starting to really understand what this whole passion week is about. It's about us taking that journey to the cross. It's about us denying ourselves. And in that denying of ourselves, it doesn't mean that our life is going to be empty. It means our life is going to be filled. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and that more abundantly. We don't, we don't turn, we don't go back. We go forward. So as, as the worship team plays, why don't you come forward if you want to start that journey today?